us today. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, I don't think there's a single solitary person here who could not testify to some time in their lives of having experienced surprises. Maybe good ones, maybe bad ones, probably both. Maybe there's been some things that have been a violation to you. I can remember years and years ago when somebody was trying to hotwire my dad's car. He was at a visit on a Sunday night with some friends and I was with him and and he came out and it was smoking around his car and somebody was trying to burglarize it. Somebody was trying to steal his car and that was a violation and that was quite a bad surprise. Sometimes people try to scare us out of our wits. Maybe you have a sibling who likes to do that. Maybe you got a sister or brother who likes to do that, and we wonder when they do that if our heart will ever stop beating fast. I know for myself that if there's a, if there's a silence in the room and all of a sudden that silence is broken, I'm up by the ceiling before you know it. It's just uh, something that happens to me. I don't like those kinds of surprises. Sometimes we like surprises, not always. Uh, On the whole, I would say we would like to know what's coming. We want to know what's to be expected. Uh, That just leaves us at a lot better frame of mind. While we may not always get our wish that way, though, when it comes to expectations, it is comforting, and it is praiseworthy, and it fills Christians with a grateful heart, and I pray it may for you as well today as we consider this matter, that nothing surprises Christ at all. Either in matters of unbelief on the one hand or faith on the other hand. That is something that if we were to draw the conclusion right now, we could say that this is consoling, this is gratifying, this is worthy of praising our God and Savior. I want to take a look at both of those sides, though, about how nothing surprises Christ on the unbelief side and how nothing surprises Christ on the faith side of things. First, the unbelief. And that's because that's kind of how the passage flows for us also. First, the unbelief is addressed and then faith is addressed. When the Church of Jesus Christ proclaims the gospel of Jesus Christ, she doesn't always know how people are going to take it. Although, thankfully, the church itself can narrow it down to either faith or unbelief, right? Uh, in that way, uh, that's true. We, we could take a great deal of pleasure in knowing that, at least. But while the church doesn't always know how particular people are going to react specifically, Uh, That's something that we can't always anticipate, but Jesus always does. Jesus always does. Our passage reminds us of that. He knew from the beginning who would believe and who would betray him, and who would not believe. In our passage this afternoon, we hear the response of two different groups to Jesus' ministry of the Word, to him as the Word who became flesh. And the first of those two, as I mentioned, is unbelief, and it's Uh, right after he had spoken about himself as the bread of life, as the one who, uh, if people would come and eat and drink drink of him in faith, that he he would be, uh, these people would know life. 
that if they would understand and believe that he was not just legally the son of Joseph, but also the divine son of God who had come down from heaven as the word made flesh, they'd know life. That if people wanted to know life truly, they would have to partake of him as the living bread of their lives through faith. But all of that is an offense to many. And we hear that in the passage from the beginning. We hear that these people who, having heard that, many of them said, that's what we see in our translation here, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? And it mentions here, interestingly, right, that many of his disciples heard it. All of this became an offense to many of those who are labeled here as disciples of the Lord. They are walking with him at this time. And we find here then that there are different kinds of faith and there's different kinds of disciples. There are those who follow Jesus to an extent, but that they aren't truly followers. Some look to Jesus for something that they think is important, but not necessarily what ought to be important. We find in this passage many who had followed him for various reasons, but not for the best of reasons. And as we've seen, they, they, they liked the idea of him being this political figure, this materialistic figure, this, this human Christ. And they also liked the idea of him being an ethnic Christ who, who's promoting strictly a, a, a Jewish cause, a, a Jewish agenda. Not so much God's cause, but the cause of blood. But they didn't like the idea of a Christ that they needed to save them from their sin, to partake of him, flesh and blood, in faith. They didn't like the idea of considering him a divine Christ. Who is this person? He's just the son of Joseph. They didn't like the fact that to consider him as somebody that was unique, as Peter would speak about in a moment. He, they didn't like the idea of a Christ who would include other nations. They didn't like a spiritual Christ. And they also didn't like a Christ who was going to be sovereign over every part of their life. Because their minds were on earthly things. They had fleshly minds. They had darkened minds. The spirit gives life, but the flesh is no good at all. It, 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 it does, accomplishes nothing. They were looking at Christ, like Paul would say later in the book to the Corinthians, one of the books to the Corinthians, he, they were looking at Christ in accordance, in according with, uh, according to the flesh. And because that was so, they, they looked at Christ's word wrongly, and they couldn't hear it. Our passage says, as I mentioned a moment ago, a couple times I guess, this is a hard saying, who can listen to it? Literally what it says there is, his word was hard to them. Who could hear it? That word saying, it, that's the way they translate that. It's literally the word logos, right? The same word that you have at the beginning 
of John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Logos. In the beginning was the Word. Our passage says literally that his word was hard to, to them. Who could hear it? Now, it could be heard audibly. That's not the point. But it, but it wasn't being heard in a receptively uh, agreeable, attractive, uh, believing kind of way. It would only be heard that way by the shepherd's sheep as spiritual food for their souls. Only they would be the ones who would hear their shepherd's voice. See, unbelief sees Christ's word as, as that which should be resisted. In the days of the Exodus, the people responded very similarly here. Jesus sees, he knows their hearts, he knows that they're grumbling. And of course, that's something that the, the Israelites did in the days of Exodus of the exodus. The people responded to the deliverance and the guidance of the Lord through his shepherd Moses, the Bible tells us, as a stiff or a hard-necked people. These people are finding this very hard uh, to receive. They grumble about it. They responded back then, as now, as if God's word and his work of deliverance was hard unworthy of, of hearing, unworthy of accepting. Now the problem then and now was not that God's word or Christ's word as the word made flesh was actually hard, but it was perceived as hard, right? I mean, even the, the, the passage uh, would speak to us about that very thing. The words that I've spoken to you are spirit and life. They're not hard, that's, that's how they were judging it, right? This saying, this word is hard. Who can accept it? No, Jesus disagrees. Uh, this word, same word as used earlier about saying, these words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But they're always going to be received as hard uh, by the world and by the false church. And, and people aren't liking this, right? Because in, in, in our day too, right? It's, it's the word of the gospel becomes a hard word to people. In, in this day and age in which we want to include everybody, and it doesn't matter what you think or how you behave or what you think of the family or what you think about anything, the, the culture, the world doesn't like the way that the gospel seems to, well, in, 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 in a real sense it does, it leaves so many people out. Right? It, it's not inclusive enough. It's not a word that speaks to the times. It's an intolerant word. It has to be softened so that, so that everybody can come on in. We don't care what you believe. We don't care what you, how you behave. Everything goes. That's the way it ought to be. And the gospel of Christ is too hard. Now we need to remove the offense so that it can be accepted. 
we have to ignore the word, really, because the word wants to draw lines in the sand about what is good and, and what is evil. And we need to come up with a different package, a different word, something that, that people can stomach so that we don't send them away offended. So how do you do that? Well, well the one thing for sure you don't do is you don't proclaim the gospel because you're talking about people needing to repent and to believe in Jesus Christ alone. And that's just way too exclusive, and that's just way too hard on people. We're being way too hard on people. You could proclaim a political Jesus, that'd be okay, who will promote your civil rights, and that's, that's what we want. You know, we see that offense that's out there, and, and and we want to promote civil rights. We want to promote political aspirations. We want to promote an economic Jesus so that we all have what we have coming to us and we have this materialistic mentality that, that was certainly evident here in John's time where all they wanted was a full stomach. We want a lawless Jesus who doesn't care about how you live. You live the way you want, I'll live the way I want, and we'll all be happy. And we'll all be included. We'll all be one big happy family. You can make a Jesus who will lower himself to your, to your standards, see? And then when that happens, of course, what really happens is that you're not confessing Christ at all. Not as Savior, not as Lord. What's really happening is that he isn't confessed to be God by us. He ends up having to confess us as his God because he needs to bow to our standards. But one thing you don't want to do is confess a Christ as the Holy One of God distinct from you in righteousness and perfection and divinity and sovereignty as the only Savior, because then you'd be confessing that you're the offense. Or that, yeah, that's it, that you're the offense. And you don't want to do that. You want to confess that Christ is the offense. And that's what's happening here. You don't want to have to confess that you're the offense and, and you don't want to have to confess of your spiritual need of him to save you from your offensive self and your need to follow his priorities and not your priorities to confess him as Savior and, and Lord. No, no, no. The, the problem's out there. The problem's with somebody else. The problem's with the system. But it's not with me. Problem's not with me. No, the problem isn't out there. The problem's here. I need Christ's salvation. And I need Christ's direction. That's the need. But that's the offense, see, that's the offense to the flesh. Spirit is one who brings life. 
the flesh counts for nothing. And the flesh looks at Christ when it looks like Christ, according to the flesh, says, I don't need a Savior, and I'm Lord of myself. And the Spirit comes and says, uh-uh. I need Christ's salvation, and I need His Lordship in my life. An offensive package to the flesh, but life to the believer. But to the flesh, it's a hard word. You know, I might look at my medicine that I have to say, take. I remember, and boys and girls, you probably, maybe some of you who are here, you, you remember having to take medicine for certain things. And I, I can remember this too. I can remember, oh, 50, oh it's probably about, uh, oh, it's almost about 13 years ago, and somebody gave me a, a pill box for my 50th birthday, and it was a gag. They just, they knew I didn't take any pills. And, uh, but they did it to try to make uh, fun for me. And that was okay. It was an empty pillbox for a few years. Well, it's not an empty pillbox anymore. Actually getting a lot of use out of that pillbox. But I'm not going to look at that medicine and I'm not going to say, well, you know what, I'm not going to take that medicine. It takes, tastes bad. It's inconvenient. i got to take it every day. And I have to commit to taking it every day. But just because I may not like how that it tastes, or I may not find it to be something that is convenient, and it cramps my style a little bit because every morning I got to take those things. No, just because I might think that that medicine's bad, <laughs> that doesn't make it bad. Not if that medicine's going to make me better. I'd be a fool not to take it. And I would be. But see, that's how Jesus' word is viewed. Verbal medicine that looks bad to people. You just don't include everybody, Jesus. Well, he does in one sense, Jew and Gentile, but it's verbal medicine to people. Jesus' word is life. Spirit. And a person's foolish if he doesn't drink it in. That's what the flesh does. It's offended by the word of Christ. But it only becomes an offense, not because it's naturally offensive, you see. It's not. It's because the natural person finds it offensive. And the answer to the problem then, or though, is not to change the message. To change the message is to remove the truth. To change the truth is to take away the life of the message. You've got nothing left. It's of no help at all. To, to take away the truth is to take away the kind of Christ that Jesus is. The Holy One of God. The Savior. The Lord. The very kind of Christ that we need to know life to the full by. Now the change that has to place, take place is not to change the message. That's never been the solution. The change that needs to take place is for the person to know a change of heart. That's the change that needs to happen. Jesus was not surprised that not everybody would accept his word. And it didn't make him panic. 
And it didn't make him question whether his word was truly life or not. He didn't start saying, hmm, maybe they're right. Maybe, maybe my speaking the truth is too harsh. Maybe it's wrong. Now, we have to speak the truth in love, no doubt. But the truth has to be spoken. Now, Jesus doesn't say, well, my main goal is to make sure that everybody's happy with me. Everybody accepts me. No, the main the main job of Jesus was to be faithful to his call. His main job was to reveal the saving and sovereign truth of God in himself. And he wasn't surprised as the divine son of God that not everybody would accept that. And he wasn't surprised that they would take counsel against him, against the Lord and against his anointed, along with a betrayer among his twelve. You know, sometimes people like to think that somehow evil is outside of Christ's line of vision. You know, and bad things are happening, no matter what it is. Oh, how God must just be wringing his hands in despair. What's he going to do? He didn't see that coming, I bet. How's he going to react to that? You know, and it makes God out to be some simple reactor to some fourth force outside of his domain and control. And that really makes that evil force sovereign over God. God's always trying to react to something more sovereign than he is. And more powerful. Then, then what good will his reaction be to everything that happens badly anyway if, if evil's sovereign over him or detached from his sovereignty? Now we see the calm reserve of the Lord in this passage as the divine Son of God. You take offense at this? You take offense at the fact that you have to partake of me in faith? That I came down from heaven to be true bread, true drink for you with my body and blood, ultimately to the cross? What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? If you're taking offense at my being the divine Son of God, if you're taking offense at my needing to be your Savior, then what about my return in glory from whence I came? Where I'm going to be sovereign over all. You take offense at my salvation, you'll take offense at my sovereignty. And that's what comes down to things when comes to the great offense to the man of the flesh. It hates the salvation of Christ and the lordship of Christ. It hates the cross of Christ, hates the lordship of Christ. The gospel's a stumbling block to Jews and offense to Greeks, but it's all part of the plan of God. All part of how he displays his saving and his sovereign plans in Jesus Christ. It's all under his control. It's all under his knowledge. It's all under his plan. It's all completely expected. Because everything is working, not for the, the evil of man or, or for the demonic realm. It's because everything is working for God's good plan. For God's good. And when it comes down to brass tacks, that's how we have to look at the world around us. You see the evil. But we're not to see the evil as the sovereign. We're not to see the evil as the ultimate po 
potentate. The sovereign is the one who is saving us from that evil. It's the one who has overcome evil. He's the one who's working all things for the good of those who love him and for his own glory. And it's so hard sometimes for us to look at the, the world like that, but that's how we need to view it. As the divine Son of God, Christ knew from the beginning who would believe and who would not. Not because he simply knew what kind of people he was dealing with. As our passage tells us and reiterates, nobody comes to Christ unless it is granted by the Father and unless they've been given the Spirit who gives life. Jesus is not surprised by evil. He's not surprised by unbelief because he knows what sinful humanity is like and he knows who belongs to him and who doesn't. And he's not going to change his message just to attract people, and nor should we as his church. Jesus' security is found in his love for his Father and the doing of his will, not in pleasing people who want him to do their will. And we need to look at it that way too. We have to be thankful to have that kind of Savior on which to trust, not someone whose word changes with every spiritual change of the wind but who is the epitome of God's covenant, dependable, the way, the truth, the life, full of grace and truth, faithful as the covenant son of God that he is. His trustworthy word that brings life is that trustworthy word on which we need to continue to trust throughout our lives, no matter how the worldly winds of change may blow. Jesus is not surprised by unbelief. And his dependability to proclaim his word as he should, should also impact the word that is proclaimed by the church today. We shouldn't be surprised by unbelief either. Perhaps we're not. But the expectation of unbelief should not keep us from presenting the word in all its truth. Nor should it cause us to water down the, the word just so that we can satisfy the masses. Jesus is also not surprised by faith. In our day and age, we'd be tempted to believe that Jesus' church growth techniques didn't work very well. He goes from having a massive following to 12, so it appears. And he says to the 12, what about you? Aren't you going to turn away as well? Aren't you offended? And Peter answers for the 12 in the opposite way of the others who, who left. They said, his word is hard. Peter says, you have the words of eternal life. Where else shall we go? For them, the word was hard. For him, these are the words of eternal life. And Peter had it right. Because if you don't go to Christ for eternal life and life to the full, and then, then there's nowhere else to go. Jesus is unique. He's the Holy One of God. And he needed to be. And people like to say we're all different, and we look different, and we act different, but in one sense we're all the same. We all need a Savior. We all need to serve the Lord, but we cannot do that and we won't have eternal life unless we come and, and stay with Christ. Nothing else can give that to us. But in case there's any pride in Peter's answer, Jesus reminds him and the rest of the twelve that he's not surprised by the answer of faith. He says, have I not chosen you? How, after all, had Peter come to know that by Jesus alone there was everlasting life? It wasn't because of his great insight. 
nor of that of the others who remain. It's because of the Father's granting. It's because of the Son's choosing. It's because of the Spirit's regenerating work. It's because of God. But as Jesus has said, even one of the twelve was truly not one of the twelve. It was apostasy. But Jesus isn't surprised by that either. Jesus knows who are his. And he's not surprised when people come to faith. And he knows those whom the Father has given him. And he chooses them for eternity and from eternity. And the Spirit cracks the heart of man. Who else can break the heart now? Who else could open our eyes? Who else could remove the offense before God? Who else could take away the sin? Who else could, could make us wise? How else would we hear the voice of the shepherd? Who else could, could it be? And how else could it be outside the sovereign, gracious, triune God? And you see where that puts you. If you're a believer, we owe our all to God. Now that powerful grace didn't surprise the divine Son of God. It shouldn't surprise us as believers either if we see things for what they really are. When we believe, the very faith that we utter shows that we are products of grace. It doesn't point to me. It doesn't point to John or Jane or Julie it points to the sovereign grace of God. It's not praise John because he believed, praise God because he believed. All the way through. And it's also why we keep preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ today because his grace continues to be at work in the lives of others through the word. A word that's, that's hard for some people, but by grace is a word that makes people say, you have the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? Now, it may seem surprising to some to, to hear the call, the call to proclaim Christ, the Savior and Lord, to the nations that don't like him. But it shouldn't be surprising to know that God can soften those who don't like him. He can soften hard hearts. He can open closed eyes. He can enlighten the darkened. He can make wise the simple because nothing's impossible with it. And that's, that's what Jesus' lack of surprise teaches us when it comes to those who believe on his name. It is that grace that should humble our hearts every single day. Before God, before others. When we know that in our own hearts, that we've responded to Christ by saying, where else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Praise God that we say that, but then let that humility find its way in the way that we treat other people. Yeah, nothing surprises the Lord when it comes to faith or unbelief. And that lack of surprise is meant to console the hearts of believers. Because on the one hand, God's not going to change his standards just to satisfy evil. And on the other hand, when we make the confession that there's no one else to turn to but Christ, we can be consoled to know that God has been at work in us by his sovereign grace. It's a very humbling, grateful, and very comforting thought. Because that, that same God remains with us. 
And that humility and that, that gratitude and that comfort is, is what needs to motivate us as we proclaim to the world by word and by deed that Christ alone has the words of eternal life. And we know there's nowhere else to go but to Him. And no matter how the world may react to that gospel that we show, that's the gospel that we need to proclaim by what we say and what we do. Some people are going to believe it too. And some people won't. But in either case, we shouldn't be surprised by that. Amen. Let's pray, shall we?